You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where sometimes I wonder just what the cure for soul coffee would be. Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Sean Engel, and I'm here to talk about the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones that came out between cover date June 1990 and November 2004, and specifically the ones dealing with Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. Kyle Rayner is pretty front and center in these books, as he's going to be starring in three of them this time out. The first is going to be Green Lantern number 132, where Kyle finally faces down with that strange person who was given a yellow power ring by the Cordians, or maybe that Gary Oldman from Lost in Space analog that we saw in the last issue. I don't know. But it's going to be a foe that Kyle is going to have to deal with. Again. Or the third time. Plus, we're also going to be looking at another annual, the final annual for the Kyle Rayner run. It's a Planet DC crossover where Kyle basically gets to play Indiana Jones with a female Tomb Raider type archaeologist who eventually becomes a superhero of the Middle East. Yeah, I didn't get the Planet DC stuff either. But the final thing we're going to be taking a look at today is Green Lantern Circle of Fire, the Brian K. Vaughn pen story of Green Lantern and a, well, a weird variety of core, which might happen to be part of Kyle's past, present, and possibly even future. It's an interesting story with some great art and a great story by Brian came on, and I can't get wait to get to it. I also can't wait to get to your emails. They've been piling up since I've had some guest hosts on, so we'll get started with all of that right after we take these podcast promo breaks. True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And transparent freak! Two! Belong in a circus. <laughs> right next to the dog faced boy. True! I have come here to bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. Oh. Hey! 
a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer, for Christ's sake. Thank God, they what he did kill all And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia, you. I say shut up! It's a man out! A man out! Two true freaks.com. Calabac, decide. It is I, Dark Side. I command you to listen to the podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the super friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Ditching and Arisian, Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him! He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. And we are back. So... Because I haven't done this in a while, I feel really bad about it. I haven't been meaning to collect you wonderful listeners, but because I have guest hosts on, I just haven't been able to get to it. It is now time to get to reading your email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And again, thank you everyone for writing in email. It's always great to get email. It's especially great to get email from my good friend to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. And he's got a couple of ones. And because I'm going to try and run through some of these, I might just kind of summarize some of the ideas. The first email I have from Scott is entitled, Jenny Confronts Her Ghost. He says, Hi, Sean. I just wanted to pass on some more of my thoughts on this lovely Monday afternoon. I hope the weather is nice and hot for you this summer. To let you know, this email came in on July 28th. So it's it's probably right now it's cooling down in the fall. So I, I did enjoy my summer, though, Scott. He says about Green Lantern 109... He found it to be a very dark and disturbing issue. And if you don't remember, that was the one where Jenny confronted the uh, Santa Claus, who was all rapey and everything. He said he really enjoyed it, but he also said that he was kind of upset that it was the last issue that Paul Pelletier would be drawing on. So that was kind of disappointing as well. In commenting on Green Lantern 110, he says that the artwork, he agrees that the artwork was kind of wonky. And some of the images of Jenny and Alan Scott in there were just all kind of messed up, which if you remember that issue, yeah. I think Emily even commented on how weird that stuff looked. 
He then goes on to mention that Green Lantern number 111, when Fatality came back, was a nice welcome, well, a welcome back to her, and we'll probably be seeing more Fatality pretty soon, actually. But he, too, was wondering how in the heck she got her arm back, and I think we'll get that explained pretty soon. But then his thoughts on Green Lantern number 122 you know, says that Kyle's back to save everyone from fatality, and it, he felt it was weird on page four how Kyle was looking at the reader asking us a question because it took him out of the story. So, yeah, I remember that beat. It was kind of awkward in there. Plus, uh, Scott was also getting kind of annoyed with the sort of backup features with the burnout Seattle guy who eventually became Effigy. So, but hopefully he'll enjoy the uh, character once we get around to him in full in the book. After that, we get a we get a sorry an email from Professor Allen, the host of the Quarterbin podcast and the co-host of the Shortbox Showcase over at the Relatively Geeky site. Go give those shows a check out; you will enjoy them, I guarantee it. But Professor Allen writes in with the title of 124, End of an Era. He says, Sean, again, I wanted to congratulate you on being so consistent in putting out such a consistently good show. I look forward to moving on to the quote-unquote next era of the show, issues that you will be reading fresh without the good or bad that could be, can come from nostalgia. I admit that I'm not familiar with any Jay Fairburst comic work, but I am curious to hear what you'll think about those issues in addition to the Judd Winnick run. Keep up the good work. Well, I, I hope you're still listening, Professor, and so far I really enjoyed the Jay Ferber issues. They were they were actually some of the more enjoyable ones that I've read, and I, I'm quite surprised that you know he really didn't get to much after that. I guess this was just sort of a fill-in for Winnick. Winnick's initial story, it was kind of iffy, but he's grown on me. It's a different feel from what Ron Mars was doing with the character, but I think I may like it. It'll be interesting to see how the rest of it goes. After that, we've got another email from Scott Davis entitled Effigy is a Burnout. This is about the issues, Green Lantern issues number 113 and 114, which was the Effigy story arc where uh, Kyle faced off with Effigy for the first time. And he's basically got the same opinion that I do of Effigy, that he's kind of a jerk character, uh, really kind of unlikable, but he enjoyed the artwork and enjoyed the story in that. He also goes on to comment about Green Lantern number 115 and Green Lantern number 116, which were the story blah, the storyline where Kyle teamed up with the Plastic Man and Booster Gold. He says he's not really a fan of Plastic Man humor, but he got over it. Well, for the most part. I think in the end he said that he found that Booster Gold and Plastic Man were kind of unlikable characters. Well, again, you know, taken in context or taken out of context of the JLA and uh, put in this one issue, they, they didn't really shine as well as they could have, in my opinion. Then Scott finishes up his letter talking about Green Lantern number 117, where Kyle was battling the Manhunter robot in the Warriors bar. He did mention that Kyle's artwork that he was supposed to show for the um, museum or the gallery showing was pretty awful, which was something that I can wholeheartedly agree with. And he does also mention that he enjoyed the story as it being a downtime issue, where Kyle actually got to decompress and didn't really have to be a hero except when he had to face the Manhunter robot. And he commented that now the Green Lantern books are kind of event after event after event and you don't really get these downtime issues. And I think he, like myself, are kind of wishing that would 
you know, sometimes be the case in the stories, but I understand why it's not. You, you want readers to read action and you expect them to be enthralled by that. So these sort of downstime, you know, character beat stories just aren't, aren't where the money's made. After that, we get another email from Scott, this time on the Day of Judgment storyline. And he says, I've read the Day of Judgment story recently and had a few comments I'd like to pass your way. On Green Lantern 118, he said it was a great issue. He liked the introduction song, which was Rainy Monday by um, the Shiny Toy Guns, I believe is who they are. Like that band. They do a, I think I included them on another, I don't know whether it was an opener or whether it was in the uh, actual it was the actual soundtrack in there, but I used major their version of Major Tom in there, which was kind of a fun song. He does comment that the uh, opening splash that had uh, Katie Lang and Donna Troy kissing was kind of uncomfortable, but I think Banks just really didn't draw Kyle very well on that splash page. And he enjoyed how the uh, last couple of pages tied into the Day of Judgment storyline overall, with Kyle meeting with the... Uh, well, the Sabrina with boobs want to be the Enchantress. But moving on to the Day of Judgment storyline, he said he was able to pick up the trade paperback for these issues, and he was really glad that he did. He really enjoyed them, thought it was a heavy story, but a really good one. He was also in agreement that he couldn't believe that Guy Gardner was nowhere in defending the city, and especially the fact that it's New York and Warriors Bar is such a mainstay in... New York City, supposedly in the DC Universe. Why wouldn't he be there to help defend it? But yeah, that's just my little nitpick. But he also asked if I had picked up the uh, Day of Judgment secret files, and unfortunately I haven't picked that up. I may have to go look at that. He uh, says it had a couple of good stories about how Alan Scott and the Sentinels of Magic uh, were tasked with disposing the Spear of Destiny, and there were a couple of small stories about Faust and Blue Devil, so Maybe I'll have to go, you know, and see if I can seek that out. That, that I, I like Day of Judgment overall, and I I wouldn't be adverse to reading some more stuff about that. But thank you once again for Scott. For, for Scott. Thank you once again, Scott, for writing in. I really appreciate it. I'm going to get one more email in before I cut this off because I've got a lot of synopsizing and talking to do. So this one comes from my good friend Michael Bradley, who is the host of the Superman and Batman podcast. <laughs> And also a little show called uh, Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast, which, which he hosts with some loudmouth schmuck. I don't know who he is. It's a good show, though. You should definitely go listen to both of them. But Michael writes with the title, I have no clever jokes utilizing number 126. And he says, Sean, wanted to drop a line following episode 126 of Just One of the Guys, a whole new era for Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, and the show. I'm glad to hear that the first issue following Ron Mars' departure was enjoyable. Creative team shifts are frequently frequently are not easy, especially when it's been mainly one writer driving a character's progression for six years. I've read a few issues here and there at the end of the series, but like you, it's mostly going to be all new to me. But from what I've heard, the remaining issues have gotten mixed reviews from different sections of fandom. It's good to know that things are starting out on a strong foot forward, however. Do you have any insight why Ron Mars left the title? Left the title, he asked. As you pointed out, there wasn't a lot of hoopla surrounding his departure, and even setting aside issue 125, which I agree felt a bit inventory-ish, his run didn't end with the rousing finale that you think it would. Was it a sales issue? Did Mars feel like everything he, he had said everything he needed to say with the character? Were there comments made in the letters pages regarding the writing switch? And from what I've read so far in the letters pages, there really wasn't any 
negativity. There didn't seem to be any animosity between the characters. I know Ron Mars went to do some more independent stuff before he came back to write Green Lantern uh, at the end of the series. But I don't think it was animosity or that he was just bored with it. I'm I'm thinking about seeing if I can secure an interview with him at some time. Uh, I know he's online. He does a lot on Twitter. And if he wouldn't be adverse to coming on and talking to it, I'd really love to talk to him about it because, you know, I'm honestly a fan of what he's done with Green Lantern and a fan of, you know, I'd like to hear what he thought about the heat stuff and all of that. But, you know, this is something I'll probably have to, you know, work through channels to see if I can get through. Going back to Michael's email, he says, back to the episode, I also enjoyed the coverage of the second 80-page giant. Not only was it relief to have a fun set of stories after the last giant, which wasn't full of which wasn't full of bad stories, but not great ones either. But bringing in a cross-section of podcasting greats for a Battle of the Podcast All-Stars was a genius idea. It was a it was a brave idea, I'll admit that, and I really enjoyed podcasting with all those people and how generous all the people were for coming on the show and doing their little bit parts. To, to be honest, essentially, I saw Aquaman in the book, and I realized that this would probably be the only chance that I would get to talk to Rob Kelly on my show, so I decided to put it put it out for him, but I was pretty certain he wouldn't want to stick around for the entire thing, so I fished it out to anyone who wanted to come on the show. And with with luck having it, I got a great response from all you wonderful podcasters out there, and it was just a blast recording with all of you. So thank you all for making that show wonderful. Back to the email, he says it was an excellent way to tie in the team up spirit of the comic. And since a few folks were making their first appearance on the show, it was nice to hear their voices as well. Yeah, I hadn't had Andy Leyland. I hadn't had Michael Leyland on the show. Well, officially, anyway. And W. Blaine Dowler, you know, was the first time on the show as well. And I'm trying to think. And Paul Spataro. I work with Paul Spataro now on, on another podcast I do. But it was great having Paul on the show as well. So, And, of course, who, who, can, who can balk at the fact that having the great Rob Kelly on the show. I mean, that's just that's just the icing on the cake. He's he's not going to listen to this, I know. Well, just, I need to stop. But continuing on with Michael, he says, Unfortunately, between this issue, the previous Dead Man appearance you covered, and the Dead Man's appearance I covered in an issue of World's Finest Comics, it seems to be a tread that Dead Man guest bots aren't that great. Maybe I should read more solo Dead Man to get more insight into him. Uh, yeah, I... I I am kind of getting that his guest spots really have not been that good. I mean, from what I've encountered of him, I bet he's probably better in his own book or if he's doing backups in Batman, I think was where he was, or maybe in Batman the Outsiders. I'm not exactly where Dead Man sort of hung his hat in the DC universe. Anyhow, Michael says, before I go, here's a few random comments. The thing that gets me with the quote-unquote tobacco is wacko ads is the second line, if you're a teen. Because apparently filling your lungs with deadly chemicals and smoke is okay if you're an adult. Of course it is. Everything's okay to do if you're an adult. You know, if you want to smoke tobacco, it's not going to affect you if you're an adult. If you want to do methamphetamines, it's fine. It won't do anything to you so long as you're an adult. Drinking all you want, heck, you can do it anytime you want so long as you're over the age of 21 and there's nothing going to happen wrong to you. So, teens... Never do anything bad, but once you hit 21, blow your mind out on coke, 
booze, and hookers. It's all good. This was not approved by anyone at all. He also says, uh, you brought up the Superman vs. Predator book. He says, that was a series I enjoyed. It's been years since I've read it, but I remember liking it more than the JLA Predator or Batman or Superman Batman vs. Alien Predator series. I haven't read any of the three, yes, three Batman vs. Predator crossovers. Wow, I knew there were a couple of Batman Alien ones, but I didn't know there were three Batman Predator ones. Wow. He says, Alex Maleev's gritty dark style is isn't specifically suited to Batman or suited to Superman as a general rule, but it worked well in that series. Plus, not once did Superman yell, get to the choppa. Which I think is probably why that series failed. If only Superman had yelled that, it would have been perhaps the best comic series ever put to paper. Finally, he says, during his segment, Dave Walker commented that everything is better with monkeys or apes. He says, I would agree, but add the caveat that jail ape can go die in a fire. I am in full and total agreement with that. Jail ape can go die in a fire. As always, keep up the great work, Michael. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, keeping up the great work with you as uh, I am the schmuck who actually co-hosts the show Parallel Lines with Michael Bradley, which you can hear every other Thursday over at greatcrypton.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening to that, and go check out all of Michael's other shows, uh, Superman and Batman, and go check out his blog, Great Krypton, and Siegel Schuster Mythmakers as well. Good stuff over there. But that's going to do it for emails for right now. I'm going to knock it on the head. Thank you, everyone, for writing in. I'll be getting more emails the next time I get to an email stopping point. Planning on having a, another guest on for the next episode, so might not get to emails next time, but you never know. And thanks, for everyone, for writing in. But now it's time to take a headlong dive into our first issue for this episode, Green Lantern number 132. This one was cover dated January of 2001, the first... Uh, well, the first cover dated issue of the new millennium. It was released on November 1st of 2000, though. The cover price was $2.25 US and 350 Canada, and the title was While Rome Burned Part 1, An Orphan's Heart. The writer was Judd Winnick. The pencilers were Daryl Banks and M.D. Bright. Ooh. The, rinker, the inker was Rich Faber. The letterer was Chris Eliopoulos. The colorist was Rob Schwager. The associate editor was Michael Wright, and the editor was Bob Shrek. In Bellevue Hospital, New York City, a group of psychiatrists discuss patient Alex Nero, a paranoid artist prone to violent outburst. After discussing his treatment, one of the interns asked about the content of his art, which lead medic relates as being like the worst parts of the Bible on crack. So, in true medical form, the trio of doctors decide it's time to up his dosage. Thanks, Obama. Meanwhile, on Pier 39 of New York Harbor, Fatality is remembering her childhood on Sanchi, her trading with the Okaran warlords, and the eventual loss of her planet. All of this really takes her off, so she starts busting up the place with her brand new yellow power ring. Of course, this is being covered by the Expositional News Network, which Jenny Lynn Hayden is relating to Greenlander Count Rainer, prompting him to break off his dinner plans with Terry Bird in order to face the female foe. Back at the pier, Fatality is causing loads of havoc when GL finally arrives to put an end to her shenanigans. The two deal out some consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved to each other, 
with Cal not only taking on Fatality, but also rescuing people from a collapsing bridge that was hit during the dust-up. But as Cal meets with rescue workers after the bridge is secure, he realizes that all of, his, all of this was just a delaying tactic to allow Fatality to go after the person she truly wanted revenge on, John Stewart. Cut to John's apartment, which has now been thoroughly trashed, John's whoopee Rin restrained in yellow construct shackles, and John beaten within an inch of his life. Fatality monologues about what she's going to do to Rin while she makes John watch, when Kyle bursts in and attempting to defuse the situation. Letting her rant, Kyle plans a distraction of zapping Fatality in the eye, then blasting her out of the apartment into abandoned area of the city. Executing the plan to a T, Kyle makes sure that John and Bren are safe before heading out against Fatality. Reaching the impact crater at Gigolo Beach, or Gilgo Beach, sorry, Long Island, Kyle delivers some more consequences while bashing Fatality with the staff of forgotten lore that he just got as a drop while raiding Ice Crown Citadel. Kyle asks where she got the ring, and Fatality says it just appeared on her hand one night. But now that Green Lantern has defeated her, she begs for an honorable death, saying that if he doesn't, she will just kill all of them. Realizing that she is broken and has given up, Green Lantern releases her and asks her for her to surrender the ring. Tears streaming down her eyes, Fatality removes the yellow band, but just as it's slipping off, it explodes, taking her other arm with it. Putting a construct tourniquet on limb, Green Lantern rushes the in- injured Xanchian to Star Labs for treatment. In the intensive care ward, Green Lantern and a Star Labs doctor discuss her prognosis and how she will have to get another prosthetic arm. Cal also asks that they do as much to help her mentally as they have physically, and the doctor says that they'll do what they can. Meanwhile, two Quardian scientists have traveled to the Batter universe with the yellow ring they they recovered from Fatality. Although the subject did poorly, the ring performed exceptionally, and now they're ready to deliver it to the one that they believe will make the most use out of it, the deranged artist from the beginning of the book, Alex Nero. I like how Jed Winnick is making Fatality out to be a more nuanced character than just a lantern hunter with a grudge against John. To be certain, a lot of this development was set forth in Ron Mars's run, but Winnick is tweaking it just enough to make the character a bit more fleshed out. Again, the addition to the Cordians, the addition of the Cordians is a welcome one, but I just wish they looked like their classic style. They look too alien and weird. I like the classic sort of Buck Rogers Flash Gordon feel that they had. The art with Banks and Bright is pretty seamless, but still, it's probably not the best output from either of them. That's just general notes. Uh, Overall, it's still going well, so I can't complain about Winnick. Let's see if I've got something to complain at when I get to my specific notes. Uh, Starting with the cover, uh, it's alright. Again, knowing that the crisis might be going on in the background should be concerning the uh, people of New York and Green Lantern. Uh, Yeah, it's a very red and orangey cover. But at least Fatality and Kyle look good on the cover, but some of the onlookers that they have in the background just look kind of off. There was this, it looks like Black Widow's in the background pointing at something completely away from where Kyle and Fatality are fighting. And the one guy in the middle looks like his arm has been 
snapped into the middle of his body. It's just, again, kind of wonky art on these secondary characters on this cover page. Page one, again, like we've gotten in some the previous stories, we get a prologue that pays off later in the book. I think the art here might have been by M.D. Bright rather than uh, Daryl Banks. I think he comes in later into the book. The art looks a lot crisper, and it looks a lot cleaner. The lines are not quite as... the Like I said, it's hard to define. It's a lot more crisp and defined of a line work than, than Banks's. Uh, so... Uh, I actually prefer it here, but I'm a big fan of M.D. Bright from his early stories or his early artwork on Green Lantern, so there you go. I will admit I'm kind of confused about the social commentary about the doctors just wanting to dope up their patients. That seems a bit out of place, but since it doesn't really seem to play anywhere into the story unless it comes out in later books, I, I guess I can overlook it here. Page 2, panel 6. Now this is one of the things that I think is a good thing that Judd Winnick did. In order to make the reader empathize with the characters, a good thing you can do is give them names. This has been talked about in a lot of other podcasts. If you give a person a name, you feel a connection to that character rather than that they just have a pseudonym-like fatality. So by giving her the name of Yara, we're able to personalize uh, fatality a lot more and actually feel for her whenever we see her get all blown up at the end of the issue. Moving on to the next page, page four. Yeah, I can tell that this is definitely bright. The The line work here is really nice. The facial expressions are really good. The, the in fact, especially the four, the third, sorry, not the third, the fourth and fifth panel here where you see Kyle on the phone and uh, Jenny tells him that fatality is there with a yellow ring and the look, the just the change on his face, the look of what's going on to stern determination is just really good. I love M.D. Bright's art, and it, it really shines here. It's a really welcome, you know, uh, it's it's welcome to see him back here in the book. Page five, again, we get some really good setup here with Terry wanting to spend time with Kyle. For a young boy who's gay, he's trying to connect with someone he thinks he has something in common with. Yet, we as readers don't know anything about that yet. And, you know, as, as just reading this off the... Off the rack, we just think, you know, Terry's just a boy who's kind of maybe feeling alone or not feeling comfortable in himself and is latching onto Kyle. But knowing that, you know, he is gay now, you know, you can kind of see that seeded. But again, it's that thing where it's not outright expressed and it could be anything. It could just be the kid's lonely and he wants to have a friend and he's kind of upset that Kyle is not being there for him. So, again, I think this is good writing of a gay character by Judd Winnick. I'm, I'm really impressed with it so far. Page 10. On this page, I'm glad that Kyle doesn't just focus on, you know, beating the living snot out of fatality, but he's also focused on saving lives. For me, it's really great to see a hero that has a big dust-up in a populated area take some time out to use his immense power to save lives that doesn't seem to be very common in some forms of media. If you know page 13, I think this is the point in the book where Daryl Banks take, takes over for art duties from M.D. Bright, and it looks good, but it's just not quite as good as Bright. I think also the inker tends to be inking a bit thicker on Banks's work, so yeah, 
uh, it's sad because Banks really started out great, and so far near the end, I've been doing a lot more complaining about his art than complimenting it, which is which is disappointing for me. Pages 14 through 16, I like how Kyle uses his brain and decides to blast Fatality into an isolated area where people won't get hurt. For me, it's great to see a superhero who puts a value on life by wanting to take the fight away from a major city and innocent people inside of it, unlike in some other forms of media. Wink. Then on page 19, holy cow, this is, it's not a gory image, but it is a very dramatic image as the ring explodes as soon as it goes off Fatality's finger, and she's left there clutching the uh, stump of her left arm. I mean, I guess both figuratively and literally, she can't catch a break. I'll let that settle in. Page 21, again, the accordions just look awful. They've kind of got the bug-eyed look of them, but now their skin is green, and I don't ever remember them being green. Plus, their uniforms are all muted. They've got sort of dark browns and greens and blues, and it's just not the it's not the same sort of Flash Gordon Buck Rogers feel that they used to have, the sort of classic pulpy feel that I think the Cordians were meant to have. They just the new aesthetic for the Cordians just isn't doing it for me. Then on uh, page 22, we get the Cordians uh, handing the ring to the uh, crazy guy in the asylum, Alex Nero, which I guess, you know, Rome is burning, Nero, yeah, there's a relationship there. So, plus this is also the uh, first uh, appearance of Alex Nero. So, collector's item? I don't know. But, yeah, a decent issue and a nice setup, a... Uh, more shading in on the character of Fatality, so that's a good thing, uh, as Fatality has played a major role in not only the Green Lantern ongoing, but now current Green Lantern title. So it's interesting to see her character develop in these books. Let's see what else is interesting in this book. Maybe some of the advertisements. Starting on the front inside cover, we get, uh, I guess, some of the burgeoning days of the internet with WarnerBrothers.com promoting the Mad Magazine website, which is madmag.com. I'm certain it's all been folded into the uh, WB or the DC Comics site right now, but, yep, it's Alfred E. Newman asking, what, me website? Yes, because that's hip and trendy, just like Alfred E. Newman. A few more pages in, we get a picture of a very red, very close to New York City moon with the uh, caption underneath it saying, the only thing worse than the weight of the world on your shoulders is the weight of the moon. And I guess this is an advertisement for Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. I've never played this one, but I think it's obvious. I can only assume it's been ported to the Wii, so you can probably swipe your little Wiimote around and do things with Link and stuff like that for Majora's Mask. Then on the next page, we've got an ad with two basketball players, one with a shirt on and one with no shirt on. And the one basketball player with his shirt on has a bunch of cottony, fuzzy, frilly shag carpet on his back. And the captions on their back saying it messes you up and they're keeping this from you. It's an advertisement for extra polar ice gum. And this ad makes absolutely no sense to me. 
Does extra polarized gum make you grow shag carpeting on your back? Are these angel wings? What the hell is this? Ugh. A bad advertisement. And then, of course, you know, like Michael Bradley said in the uh, email that I read earlier, we've got an advertisement for Tobacco is Wacko if you're a teen, as we see this very stylized uh, youth clutching at her throat, you know, sort of coughing out a cigarette that has an evil smiley face on the uh, lit end of it, and she's all sweaty and her hair is all frazzled and horrified. And I guess it's sponsored by the... Uh, Low Lillard Tobacco Company's Youth uh, smoke, Not Smoking Prevention Program. So, yeah, kids, don't smoke, but when you get to be an adult, you can smoke all you want. It's cool when you're an adult. Then the next, game, or the next page is an ad for the PlayStation game Driver 2, The Wheelman is Back, which looks kind of uh, along the line of, you know, Transporter video game where you just drive around and do things. I'm not certain if it's one of those open-world games, but it looks entertaining enough. Again, unfortunately, I can't say how well it was because I never had a PlayStation at the time and never played this one. And then, you know, I haven't noticed this in a while. This is a uh, advertisement for a band, and usually bands were more in the trendy magazines, like the sort of Vertigo-S DC magazines, but we've got one for the Cottonmouth Kings, their album High Society, and they are a very white Wu-Tang Clan, I guess. I don't know. I, I only know of one Cottonmouth King song, and I can't repeat it on here because it has profanity, and plus I could give a rat's ass about the Cottonmouth Kings. Sorry. Then the next page is an ad for a game that I have never heard of before, and I'm amazed that they made. It's, it's the ad of uh, what looks to be Kevin Sorbo as Hercules getting a bunch of tattoos crossed off his arm with the title mess with the best go down like the rest it's an advertisement for the hercules video game for the it looks just like it's for the nintendo 64 uh hercules has i think a toculus and some demons on his arm that he's having hexed out i guess hercules can't afford laser surgery to get those off but yeah this is the kevin sorbo hercules of uh sam raimi and robert tappert fame so I guess even he got a video game, so good on you, Sam Raimi. Then moving on, we've got more video games. This is Cruising Exotica, which is essentially a, a first-person racing game with various different cars and various different countries. This time, rather than just doing streets of you know major American towns, I guess you get to go to exotic places like Atlantis, the Amazon, and Mars, of course, because anyone can travel around New York City, and what you really want to do is drive a car in the barren, desolate waste of Mars. And maybe while you're there, you can desecrate some of John Jones's, you know, ancestral burial grounds. That'd be great, too. Then after that, we get a trio of, or a double-page splash with a trio of games from uh, Namco, Tekken Tag Team Tournament, which is a sort of a bloxy, pixelated fighting game, uh, Ridge Racer, which is a, another sort of I guess, Need for Speed type game, and MotoGP, which is a Need for Speed game with motorcycles. So, yay for Namco. They didn't die out when Nintendo decided to drop their license from their game, so there you go. 
Then the next page is an ad for wizardworld.com, which has a copy of uh, Batman The Dark Knight Returns, you know, the one with the big leaping Batman, the bolt of lightning going down a bit. And it's, uh, I guess it's a way to track your comic book collection and find out how much your comic collection is worth. I can guarantee right now, probably not as much as you have wanted it to be. Sorry, speculators. But then we get our first house ad for the book, and this one is for JLA, A League of One. It says, to save her comrades from an ancient evil, Wonder Woman must first betray them. Uh, it's a, uh, it's an interesting thing. It looks like Wonder Woman's uh, going all Lord of the Rings, fighting, you know, the Balrog or some red demonic dragon thing. It's supposedly written, well, it's not supposedly, it's written and illustrated by Christopher Moller, or Mollier, I guess. Never read it, and the artwork looks nice in a very, like I said, Dungeons & Dragons type style. Then the next page, you get a stylized sprite can with a bunch of various things stuck inside it. Uh, people, you know, motocross and doing tennis on a cell phone, playing soccer, rollerblading on the computer. And the uh, advertisement uh, line at the bottom is freaky what you can get out of a bottle of Sprite these days. I guess uh, every cap has a chance to win free Sprite or Rocket Cash, the online money you can use to buy whatever you want from over there 100 vendors. So, uh, basically, Sprite getting into the Bitcoin thing, you know, a couple of decades early. Way to go, Sprite. Then uh, the next page is an advertisement. You know how I mentioned uh, MotoGP, Ridge Racer, and Tekken Tag Team Tournament? Well, I guess there's some sort of uh, online gaming thing where if you play these and you could win a uh, grand prize of the uh, actual Tekken Tag Tournament arcade unit. Hmm, that'd be kind of interesting. But uh, the neat thing about this is I think this is the first time I've noticed this in the uh, comics. These are advertisements for PlayStation 2 games and not PlayStation 1. So I guess recently the PlayStation 2 has come out and these games are now uh, the more advanced system. Unfortunately, I've seen that the Sega Saturn games or the Sega Dreamcast games are no longer to be seen. So sad about that then, man, there just seems to be a lot more ads in these books. We've got one for nego Renegotiate Your Curfew. It's a glow-in-the-dark football, the Twilight Lighted Football by Huffy Sports. So I guess if you wanted to go play football in the middle of the night, I, you could go play it with this football and probably get cancer as well. I don't know. That's That's really a lighted football? Oh. Okay, sure. Then again, uh, after that, we get another advertisement for GamePro.com. And if some of you know, the GamePro magazine was essentially the, uh, well, not the, no, you know, it is one of the better magazines out there covering, you know, video games, both in the arcade and in the home systems. And they say they talk about games from the PlayStation 1 and 2, the Dreamcast, the Nintendo 64, the Game Boy, PC games, online games, and arcade games. So, I guess you could go to the site and log on and get free access there, or you could subscribe to the magazine. Uh, that's kind of interesting that, you know, this is our first look at sort of an online magazine that's come from a newsstand magazine. Digital's taking over the world. Then we get another PSA for the anti-drug message, and it's a stylized picture of a sort of you know, urban youth kind of blocked out in checkerboard patterns with, you know, 
his face it's his face it's hard to explain it's an image of his face but the details of it are distinguished by bits of the white background and his hair and certain shaded colors are uh yellow and green and orange and pink checkerboard it's it's weird but i guess it's for an anti-drug psa so don't do drugs kids then after that is another advertisement for a band that i actually kind of enjoy uh green day's warning one of their one of their lesser albums i think this came out a couple of albums before american idiot maybe it was the one that came out before it but uh it's got minority and warning on it and uh sex blood and booze i haven't heard that one but you know minority and warning are good songs so there you go and holy cow an- Another advertisement with a young kid sitting on an orange bouncy ball thinking about what they should wear, what she should wear tonight. And she's thinking sandals, jeans, glitter, a top. But of course, cigarettes, no thanks, because cigarettes are bad. Don't smoke, kids. We get it, okay? We, we really do. The back inside cover is another Skittles ad, except this time the uh, rainbow is angry and it's firing out lightning and has a... Uh, Looks like it's got the uh, portal to the uh, Doctor Who crack in time going on there, and as it's raining down sour skittles. So, yeah, you taste the rainbow and get electrocuted by it. Yum. And then the, uh, oh, oh, great. It's the L2 uh, gear again, the uh, the hip Levi's things, where there are two kids playing out in the snow. One kid has a little snowball, and the kid behind him in L2 gear, and a ridiculous... It's not a toque. It's one of those hats with the flaps on the sides. Is holding up a giant snowball and ready to bean the kid with it. I I have the feeling that the L2 clothing line was definitely not for me. But that does it for this book. I'm going to go ahead and take a quick break, get a drink, and come back to look at our next book. Green Lantern Annual. Number nine. You've decided to go to a nearby restaurant. You ask the hostess to seat you in a booth. As you sit, you notice an animated conversation among the four seated behind you. They're talking about Star Wars and Doctor Who and something called the Laugh Olympics. These are the people you used to pants in high school. And yet, you cannot help listening. Unable to tear your ears away, you realize you've just been sucked into the Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, weekly at twotruefreaks.com. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up 
for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up, up, and away. Atomic batteries to Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. And we are back. So let's go ahead and take a look at our second book we're going to be covering today. This one is Green Lantern Annual number 9. Green Lantern Annual number 9 had a cover date of September 2000 and a release date of July 26, 2000, a cover price of $350 US and $550 Canada. The title for this book was Mother of Heaven, Lady of Battle. The writer was Tim Truman, the pencilers were Coy Turnbull for Part 1 and Paul Ryan for Part 2, the inker was John Lowe for Part 1 and I guess Paul Ryan for Part 2, the colorist was Pamela Rambo, the letterer was Albert Guzman, assistant editor Frank Berrios, and the editor was Bob Schreck. And all of this was part of the DC's Planet DC crossover, which was a way to introduce characters of different ethnic orientation into the DC universe. Think of it, bloodlines without the aliens. In a refugee camp near the Syrian border, a band of blue-skinned demons exits the portal in the sky and lays waste to the camp and all those living in it. Surveying the devastation, the lead demon, Pazuzu, inhabits the body of one of the corpses and walks off to complete his earthly task of opening a mystic portal for his evil mistress. Some time has passed, and we meet with three treasure hunters who have come across a hole in the middle of the Syrian desert a hole that they believe is the gateway to Kernugi, the Babylonian version of Hell. Going into full Laura Croft mode, the expedition leader, Sala, plans on exploring further when one of her group is shot sniper-style by a passing government police force. After a one-sided interrogation by the obviously corrupt officer, the treasure hunters are saved from the same shooting fate by Green Lantern, who just happened to be passing by because, you know, convenience. Also falling into that same convenient category, Sala realizes that Green Lantern is actually Kyle Rayner, whom she knew when they were studying art back in college, so there's that as well. And since he's here, he might as well help them play Indiana Jones and the Portal to Hell. So the group, now accompanied by crazy old Jafar in disguise, head into the hole. Reaching the bottom, they discover the gateway to Kernugi, which just happens to have the inscription on it of, wait for it, a Green Lantern symbol. The explorers are shocked. Shocked, I say, at the incredible number of coincidences that are happening today, but not as shocked as they are that Pazuzu, the demon from the beginning of the story, and his minions attack them and bring them through the portal. Once in the Temple of Doom, our heroes have to deal with a lot of threats and exposition from Batty Eriskigal and her entrail-faced minion, Humbara. You see, in order to fully get out of this hell, Eriskigal needs Kyle's ring, again, conveniently, to power the staff of Istar so that they can party on Earth. Of course, Sala happens to be the descendant of Istar, so when she's touched by the staff, make your own dirty comments, she becomes the Red Sonya-like warrior, Istar. So, now all they need is Kyle's ring, which they end up getting by having a lot of demons enter it. 
No, not in a rapey kind of way, but in an exorcist kind of way. This causes Kyle to give out the ring and allows the ritual to open the portal to take place. But Kyle and Sala aren't out of the fight yet as they deal out some consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, to the Babylonian baddies. Going all Xena on their asses, Sala grabs a sword and relieves the portal loading minion of the staff, allowing Kyle and the generic assistant number two to escape. But before the portal closes for good, Sala tosses Kyle his ring and sh- as she continues to fight the good fight on the other side. Price is averted, Kyle and Deadweight fly off on a winged camel, with Kyle promising that he'll be back, and when he does come back, he'll bring friends. Okay, this is not a bad annual, especially if you're comparing it to the sort of analog to it, Bloodlines. But still, it's not really all that entertaining. It seems like they wanted to introduce a number of international heroes in this year's annuals, much like what they did in Bloodlines, except not tie them to goofy aliens who like to suck the brain juices out of you. To what level of success came out of this is up to you to make your judgment. In some reading, it looks like some of these characters were able to make a small mark in the DCU, with one character who came out of this annual event getting the privilege of being heat vision in half by Superboy Prime in Infinite Crisis. So, there is that. The art in the beginning is significantly more 90s, with it having a feel of a Mitch Bird pencil behind it. I was mildly interested that the demon in the story was Pazuzu, the one from the Exorcist movies, but other than that, the story was pretty straightforward. Evil is trapped, evil wants out, heroes find and almost release the evil, until they win in the end. So, nothing groundbreaking, nothing awful, but nothing really to write home about. I guess, a typical DC annual. But we can go ahead and go with some notes. I really don't have that many uh, for this book. Um, On page four, we see the demon Pazuzu possessing this dead guy who's obviously been burned to a crisp. I never really caught that the dead guy that Pazuzu possesses is actually the old guy that travels with Sala and company until like a second read through. So, you know, interesting storytelling there, I guess. Page 14, after the encounter with Sala, who is very much like the uh, Hispanic character in Mitch Bird's uh, first foray in Guy Gardner. Definitely has a look like that. On page 14, Kyle can't seem to give a reason why he's called into the middle of the Syrian desert. I mean, I know he's a hero and he's supposed to be out there defending the Earth against galactic badness, but he just seems to be in the right place and the right time for this story, and it all just sort of reeks of coincidence, and poorly reeks of coincidence, in my opinion. Page 17, after they've gotten down into the hole to the portal to hell, we see that the door to the portal of hell is is held in place with a green lantern symbol placed in front of it. Unfortunately, it's not the typical Green Lantern symbol, it's the sort of yin-yang, half-and-half Green Lantern symbol that I think has only been apparent in Kyle's run. So why would a symbol for Kyle Rayner that Kyle Rayner has produced be on an ancient Babylonian piece of wall art? I, I don't understand that. 
page 18, I will say that I like the design of uh, Pazuzu. Uh, he's not so much of the uh, creepy demon from the Exorcist movies as as more of like Blue Devil with wings. Uh, minus the horns, basically. But yeah, he kind of has got that Blue Devil type look. So if you're into that, there's that in this book. Then, you know, really my final note's only on page 21. It's kind of weird as we get the... These ancient Babylonian gods who've been trapped here for centuries are in the form of a sort of goofy teenage girl and her gripey mother. It just seems very sitcom. It just doesn't work for me. I mean, I've had worse annuals I had to read, but this really doesn't match up to say, oh, the Elseworld annual or the Planet DC, or not the Planet DC, but the uh, Legends of the Dead Earth one, I think those were really good. Even the uh, even the Pulp Heroes one, I think, was significantly better than this. Still, it's better than Bloodline, so, but that's really not giving it all that high praise. But that does it for this. I'm going to take another quick break, play a few more promos, and when I get back, I'll be getting into my third book for this issue, a book that I think I'm going to enjoy a lot more, and I hope you'll enjoy a lot more, the first issue of Green Lantern Circle of Fire. Hey, Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff, but what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Someone like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice. Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, Quasar. Ah, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that, that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? What is it that makes a superhero? Superpowers like super strength? Or bullets bouncing off your chest? Perhaps the ability to fly. Or can a regular person with the super heart and the brains to match become on the outside what he has been on the inside all along? Hi, this is Matthew Apps, and I'm the host of a monthly internet radio program covering the adventures of Steel, the only human member of the Superman family of characters to wear the air shield. It's called The Armoured Hero Steel, a John Henry Irons podcast. On the show, as well as looking at his adventures, I also take a look at the ads and letters in Steele's book, briefly look at what's happening in the rest of the Super Family, and even take a closer look at people that are important to the character of Steele, from the people that worked on his book, to supporting characters, including heroes, villains, and even family members. Check it out every month at www.thefanofsteel.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com And once again, we are back. 
So let's go ahead and jump right in because, yeah, this is a bit longer than your average episode. We're going to take a look at our last book this time out, and it's a good one, Green Lantern Circle of Fire number 1. This one was cover dated early October 2000 and released on August 16, 2000, with a cover price of $4.95 US and $7.95 Canada. High price, but very high page count as well. The writer was Brian K. Vaughn, the penciler was Norm Brayfogle, inkers were John Lowe, Ray Kreising, Steve Bird, John Nyberg, and Keith Aiken. Wow, a lot of inkers. Letter was Sean Conant, the colorist was Glenn Whitmore, separations were by Jameson, assistant editor was Frank Berrios, and the editor was Matt Idelson. On the alien planet of Ron, Buck Rogers' analog Adam Strange tries to calm an oncoming throng of fearful Ronians. Unable to get to his translator, Adam has to make do by trying to translate a woman's frantic screams himself, eventually discovering that what she was running from is the end. Looking skyward, Strange sees an ominous figure calling himself Oblivion hovering in the air. Adam prepares to confront the antagonist, but the Zeta radiation that beams him to Ron runs out, transporting him back to Earth with Oblivion's message that he is coming for them next. Cut to the apartment of Kyle Rayner, where he and former Green Lantern John Stewart are trying to meet the deadline for turning in his comic strip to Feast magazine. While finishing his background line work on a panel, John comes across the image of Alex DeWitt that Kyle had left in a frame near the art desk. After asking about the hottie, Kyle relates Alex's fate to John, but now he's moved on since her death. We then cut to Ivy University, where Professor Ray Palmer is quizzing student Ronnie Raymond on his knowledge of the elements. Ronnie isn't doing as well as he used to, since Professor Stein is no longer in the picture, but Palmer doesn't think this should exclude Ronnie from becoming Firestorm. But the testing is cut short as a student informs the two that there's a man with a gun on the campus. Ronnie springs into action as the nuclear man, but is stopped at taking the gunman down by the Atom, who tells Firestorm that he was fighting with a friend of the JLA, Adam Strange. Apologies made, Strange tells the tale of evil that attacked Ron and its plan to head to Earth. Back in Kyle's apartment, he and John are finishing up when Kyle gets a Priority One distress call on his JLA communicator. Changing to Green Lantern, Kyle rockets towards the Watchtower, where he's filled in on the encroaching attack by Oblivion. This revelation stuns Kyle, as Oblivion was a comic villain that he created when he was a kid that has now seemed to have come to life. Not wasting any time, the big guns of the JLA head out to confront the menace before it reaches Earth. But as they try and diplomatically engage it, the heroes find that Oblivion is not the kind of person to negotiate, leading to some intergalactic consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights deserved, being dealt out. But Oblivion pops open some miniature black holes in an attempt to crush our heroes, and a red sun to weaken Superman. Knowing that they'll need backup, Superman sends Kyle back to Earth to get reinforcements, which a self-doubting Kyle eventually does. Along the way, Kyle runs into the Spectre, who gives him the cryptic message that he's about to face the most difficult challenge of his life, and he must look for answers within to solve the solution. Not impressed by the warning, Kyle resumes his sprint back to the Watchtower. Finally reaching the base, Kyle finds that the Atom has lost all contact with the JLA members who confronted the Bolivian. Ordering what he's going to do now, Kyle calls Oracle for help, but she tells him that with the JLA gone, supervillains have taken advantage of their absence, and the JSA is busy handling things on Earth. But she is able to send a little help his way in the form of Power Girl, 
we'll be heading towards the Watchtower after changing into a truly awful uniform. Back on the Watchtower, Kyle is rallying the remaining heroes, all the while wishing for a bit more help. And, strangely enough, that help comes, in the form of six members of the Green Lantern Corps from across the time stream. The Corps includes an Admiral Knight from the 1300s, Green Lightning, a lantern-slash-speeder hybrid who is a descendant of Kyle and Wally's offspring, a couple of teen twins, a repurposed Manhunter robot, and an alternate universe version of Alex DeWitt, a Green Lantern that had Kyle Rayner die in her reality. Still wondering just what the heck is going on, Kyle takes charge and splits the hero lanterns into groups to fulfill certain missions. Power Girl and the Emerald Knight, who just so happens to be a Daxamite, head to the planet where Oblivion was held captive, as Kyle believes the JLA are being held there. Firestorm and the Manhunter GL are to scour the universe for the Omega option, and if that doesn't exist, something that can take Oblivion down. Green Lightning and Adam Strange are headed back to Ron to find out why Oblivion attacked there first. Adam and the twins are left on the Watchtower as Earth's last line of defense, and Kyle and Alex are to head out to find Oblivion themselves. Saying that he's not the best at rallying the troops, Kyle tells the heroes to have faith in him. But in case that doesn't work, to say their prayers as well. Now this is more like it. Brian K. Vaughn is a well-known comic writer who gave us such great stories as Why the Last Man, Saga, and Runaways, and this book looks like it'll fit in with those nicely. Paired with artist Norm Brayfogel, and you've got a winning combination for what looks to be a really epic story. The idea that Kyle might have created not only Oblivion, but maybe even these Green Lanterns, is an interesting idea, and I can't wait to see where things go from here. I do think that Kyle's feelings of self-doubt are a bit convenient for the book, but I have felt that Kyle is, should have been over of this by this time in his life. Self-doubt shouldn't have been a part of his life, but I'm assuming for this story, him being self-doubting is kind of a necessity. So, again, I'll let it go. But I'll go ahead and get to notes for the book, uh, starting with the cover, which is... Not really all that interesting. You've got a weird sort of circular image of this star-fielded being with flames coming out of it, with Kyle looking marginally okay on the cover. Really, the only thing that's really stand out of the cover is the interesting sort of lantern symbol and the uh, title card there. Otherwise, just kind of there, nothing really much to write home about. So, sadly, the cover isn't as eye-catching as you know, one would hope it to be for a story of this uh, level of epicness. Should use better words than that. Pages 1 through 3, it's nice to see Adam Strange back in the DCU, although the last time we saw him was during that rescue, I think, in Green Lantern number 75, where uh, Kyle stopped the uh, floating city of Ranagar from falling back onto the planet of Ran. I don't know whether he's fixed things up on Ran, after all that, or whether or not this is just the same as it ever was. It's never really mentioned, but maybe in the uh, crossover with uh, Adam Strange and Green Lantern, we'll get to figure that out. Pages 4 through 5. I said this was supposed to be part of Kyle's work for Feast Magazine, but looking at the artwork here, I'm wondering if it's just freelance stuff, because it seems very 
comic-y, very superhero-y, where Feast Magazine was supposed to be sort of more edgy comic strips, I guess. Um, this looks more like a sort of Captain America and Bucky analog, but, of course, very 90s versions of Captain America and Bucky, so there you go with that. Page 7, the top couple of panels here really sell really, really sell Kyle's emotion really well. Um, <clears throat> in the first panel, you get a sort of down-looking Kyle with his eyes closed. In the second panel, you just get this little thin panel of the refrigerator scene with Alex's legs sticking out of the refrigerator. So it's not focusing on that. It's just there kind of and you'll miss it. But if you know what you're supposed to be looking for, it does paint a powerful image here on this page. Plus, I'm kind of surprised on this page that Kyle never talked to John about this and all the times that he had gotten together with them at the Warriors bar to just chat about stuff that John never knew that Kyle had a girlfriend who was killed by Major Force. I know Guide knew about it because, well, Kyle and Guy took on Major Force in the uh, Collateral Damage crossover line or whatever that was that crossed over between Green Lantern and, you know, Guy Gardner Warriors, so... But yeah, the fact that John doesn't know is kind of surprising. Page 8, we get introduced to the secondary characters in this book with uh, Ronnie Raymond and Professor uh, Roy Palmer, or Ray Palmer, uh, as the Firestorm and Adam. And for some reason, Ronnie's been separated from Professor Stein. And unfortunately, because I don't know Firestorm that well from this era, I don't know what happened to him. Hopefully I'll be able to get Shag on, on the... Uh, Firestorm Green Lantern show, and I can talk to him about what exactly went on with the character. Page 10, Brady Fogel's artwork just looks amazing here. Firestorm looks great. He's got the atomic symbols, you know, coming off of his hand and a giant sort of atomic symbol surrounding the entirety of his body. And Adam Strange really looks well, really looks great here as well. The, the sort of Buck Rogers classic pulpy look is just something I really, really enjoy, and I wish they could find a way to make Adam Strange work better in the DC Universe. You know, I, I haven't heard how things are going over in the sort of Justice League Canada or Justice League United now, I think it's being called, but I'd like to see how, uh, I think, Jeff Lemire handles the character of Adam Strange. Maybe I'll check that out. Moving on to pages 15 and 16, everyone on these panels at the Justice League satellite or at the Actually, at the Watchtower on the Moon, looks really grim. I mean, Batman, Wonder Woman does. Um, not so much Ronnie Raymond or Firestorm. He he looks kind of glad to be there, but everyone looks pretty pretty menacing. They've got their scowly faces on, except for Superman. In fact, Superman's got sort of a cocked eyebrow and is looking at Aquaman, who's being very grim and just sort of musing on how amusing it is for Aquaman to be looking grim, I guess. I think it's nice every once in a while to see Superman be sort of not only the leader of the Justice League, but sort of the the ebullient and upbeat leader of the Justice League. Batman leading the Justice League would just be a grim and unfriendly place or an unfriendly team that I don't think anyone would want to be on. Superman needs to be there to be sort of that, I hate to say, hate to say a cliche, the sort of ray of sunshine in the room, but that's kind of how I feel. 
page 20, panel 3. This is kind of a weird piece of artwork here. I know they redesigned Batman's uniform to take out a lot of the blue elements of especially his costume. They kept kind of the blue on his cape and his gloves. But I thought for a while that they got rid of the the sort of shorts that he was wearing. But here in this panel, Brayful Gold draws him with the shorts, but it it looks more like a blue jock strap than actual blue trunks. It's kind of unnerving because it you know basically draws your attention right down to Batman's junk and that's not where I want to be looking in the comic. Pages 23 and 24 is a nice two-page uh, splash of Oblivion and his sort of menacingness. It's it's a lot it is a very 90s character. He's got sort of Loki horns on his helmet. Uh, he's got a sort of... His face is ebon, but it also has a sort of cross-hatching along the lighted areas where the light tends to hit him. It's an interesting design. It is very 90s uh, as well, which is kind of odd seeing this is coming out in the 2000s, but obviously this is Kyle and his youth drawing it, so... Maybe he was kind of influenced by those you know, late 80s, early 90s type images. Maybe. Page 25, I love the fact that Wonder Woman, in her own inimitable way, tries to reason with this villain and tries to work for peace. However, once she's got punched in the face and knocked into space and her breathing apparatus, which is odd because aside from eras in like the pre-crisis Justice League, you never really saw Wonder Woman going out into space in just, you know, anything but a breathing apparatus. In the old JLA, she used to have the sort of clear domed helmet on that she'd go out into space in. Now she's uh, out there in the space with just a rebreather on, and the the bottom three panels where she's gotten punched and she's bleeding from the lip, and she looks incredibly upset and incredibly badass, and I... Love it. Page 29. Not only can this being in oblivion create little miniature black holes to affect the uh, the people around it and pull it in and basically into a cosmic vent and crush them, he can also create an artificial red sun, which quickly weakens Superman, which is makes him a pretty formidable villain. So whoever came up with this villain, whether it be Kyle or if this villain actually existed, is makes him pretty powerful. Page 32, I don't know why Kyle doesn't know that the Spectre is Hal Jordan. I mean, not only after the whole Dave Judgment thing did we see Kyle interact with the Spectre, I don't remember if the Spectre or if Hal wiped his mind from remembering that the Spectre was actually Hal Jordan. I thought people knew about that, but maybe at this point in time that wasn't the case. I'm, I thought Kyle remembered, but I could be wrong here. And plus it also could be for convenience of the plot as well. I, I wouldn't put it past that either. Page 39, Kara was in, and I guess at this point in time she's known as Karen, but Power Girl has an excuse for wanting to change into a different uniform. Out of her traditional white uniform with the big red cape and the blue boots. Now, this one doesn't have the boob window, but it is pretty low cut. And it's it's the traditional Kara stuff. So I wonder why she had to change out of that to 
an even more ridiculous uniform. Of course, we get the introduction to that uniform on page 41, and oh man, it is awful. I, if you've seen the images of the New 52 version of the Power Girl uniform, this is even worse. It's like a full bodysuit with a kind of a, tur a loose turtleneck collar that's it's all white with sort of a gold v-neck that leads down to her crotch it's just it's unappealing and i don't get it maybe this is the time when they just didn't know what to do with power girl which is disappointing because she's a decent and good character i I've heard great things about the Palmiati and Connor run on it, on Power Girl. Pages 44 through 50, we get the introduction of this new Green Lantern Corps. We get one who's essentially a medieval knight who's also a Daxamite, so essentially he's of the same breed of Superman. Whenever he gets in the vicinity of a yellow sun, he becomes super-powered, so he's obviously a good one to team up with Power Girl. We get a repurposed Manhunter robot who looks, who doesn't look like your traditional Manhunter. His legs are sort of insectoid, kind of along the lines of an upright praying mantis. I know there's got to be some sort of bug alien from the DC universe that I just can't bring to mind at the time, but that's kind of what he looks like. But his upper torso has the sort of look of, you know, in Robocop 2, the like the one of the RoboCop uh, prototypes that basically took and shot himself. His torso sort of looks like a, a jukebox with a clear visor in the middle, where there's some sort of green fluid keeping him alive or something. I don't know. The next ones are Hunter and Forest. Yes, you heard me right. Hunter and Forest, Hunter and Forest, sorry. The Green Lanterns. Get it because Hunter Green and you get it. But they are two teen Green Lanterns who might be Kyle's offspring from the future, might be in some way related to Carrie Wren, might be in some way members of the Legion, but basically they share the ring. So, however that works. Then there's the Speedster Green Lantern. It's all clad in white with a yellow lightning bolt symbol on, on her front. And supposedly she is the offspring of Kyle Rayner and Wally West's offspring in the uh, future. So I guess she's the, not ancestor, but, uh, or I guess Kyle is her ancestor from the past. So, yeah, Wally's kids and Kyle's kids hooked up. So, nepotism? No, what would it be? I don't know. It's creepy nonetheless. But then finally, the one that is the most unnerving is the fact there is one supposedly from an alternate dimension where Alex DeWitt got the Green Lantern ring and her boyfriend Kyle Rayner died. Hopefully not in a refrigerator, being crushed by major force, but... Regardless, that would still be creepy nonetheless, and you really don't get the idea who she is until the very end when she reveals herself. So it's it's a nice setup for all these different lanterns. 
But then we get to the final part of the book, pages 52 to 54, where Kyle splits up the lanterns and the superheroes and teams, putting Power Girl and the Daxamite Green Knight to go out to this prison planet where they think the uh, superheroes might be held is great because he's putting the big guns together. Putting Adam Strange and Green Lightning, it's a little different, but I think the sci-fi aspect of Adam Strange with the sort of sci-fi aspect of the speedster could work well together, and we'll see how that works out in the Green Lantern Adam Strange story. Keeping the Adam and the twins together is kind of, well... It's kind of like they felt they didn't really know what to do with them, so they just said, you stay here in case anything bad happens with the rest of us. Teaming Firestorm with the robotic Manhunter Lantern is a good idea because, well, Ronnie just doesn't quite know his chemistry, and you've got someone that's a living computer, it can help him at any time when he needs to have, you know, like the periodic table brought forth to him. So that's a good pairing there, and of course, Alex and Kyle going out together to try and find Oblivion. That's going to be the one I think is going to be the most interesting story. But that is the setup for the Circle of Fire story, which has five stories accompanying it and a final tying-in story of Circle of Fire number two. And we're going to be getting to those over the next couple of weeks. In fact, next week we're going to be covering not only Green Lantern number 133, which deals more with the... Uh, character of Alex Nero and him getting ring, but Green Lantern Circle of Fire, the crossover between Green Lantern and Adam Strange. And because I know someone who's a pretty big fan of Adam Strange, I've asked him to come along on the podcast. Who is he? Well, I'm certain you know him from a relatively well-known podcast. It's relatively one of the best ones out there. But we'll be talking to you, and he'll be talking to you as well, in seven days. Until then, I hope you guys have a great week, and thanks once again for listening to another episode of Just One of the Guys. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeBonsecore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greek Lantern podcast.
The opening music for today's show was Soul Coughing with their song Circles, off their album El Oso, which you can buy at a myriad number of places. The best place, of course, is Amazon.com. Amazon.com should always be your one-stop shop for buying anything digital or vinyl or CD-type music. Or if you want to buy electronics, games, videos, whatever, Amazon.com is definitely the place to go. Of course, the best way to get to Amazon.com would be through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to the 2TrueFreaks webpage and hit the Amazon.com banner up in the upper left-hand corner, you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you can buy Soul Coughing, The Screaming Trees, The Lemonheads, whatever 90s bands you'd love to buy, and all at ridiculously low prices. Plus, anytime you use the link at Tutor Freaks to go to Amazon.com, a small amount of your purchase price gets kicked back to the Tutor Freaks site, and you won't even see a cent come out of your pocketbook in addition to what you actually pay for the song. So, anytime you feel like buying something from Amazon.com, be certain to use the link at TutorFreaks.com because it really helps us out. <laughs> 